might surprise you with the first thing that comes to mind for me. You all at Insight Higher Ed might see this more um, clearly than individual presidents or leaders or campuses see. Higher ed is under attack right now. The value proposition of higher ed is under attack right now. The, the idea of having uh, a campus be a crucible of ideas, the academy be a, being a place where we examine different issues, the freedom to do that and to come up with new ideas and innovation is under attack right now. From my perspective, what higher ed needs, uh, this is gonna sound silly, but they need a got milk campaign. We need to restate and reshare the value proposition of higher ed. Now, absolutely, our students should leave us prepared for their first job and their second job and their third job. Gone are the days like dinosaurs like me stay in a job for 30 years. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is a podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders that will help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Each week, I partner with a journalist to have a conversation with a sitting college president, chancellor, system leader, or someone in the broader ecosystem who's really an inspiring leader. And the goal is to have a conversation to distill their perspective and their insights gathered from their leadership journey. Our hope is that this is inspiring and gives you something to look forward to each week. This episode, my co-host is Inside Higher Ed co-founder and CEO, Doug Lederman. Today, we're joined by uh, Dr. Fran Virgi, who's president of California State University Fullerton. Been that since 2017. He had a previous stint as a leader at the Cal State system as executive vice chancellor and general counsel and secretary to the board, a bunch of titles. Before that, had a fascinating career in law. So we'll talk a little bit about his path to that. Back to you. Welcome, Dr. Virgi. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. I'm uh, excited to uh, to talk to you about something I know a little bit about me. <laughs> well, well, let's start there because as we were trying starting the conversation, I was trying to find out a little bit about your background, and it was so interesting. We had to have you stop talking because we wanted to get it <laughs> get it recorded. Prior to this, you work at the CSU. You work in the chancellor's office. But before that, you're a lawyer, and that's a completely different world. You're in the private sector. Could you just share a little bit more about your background that you were about to share? Sure. I will, I will share that I'm an immigrant to this country. I came here in uh, uh, when I was five years old. Uh, I came across on the Queen Mary, believe it or not, uh, never knowing it was going to be in my backyard for the rest of my life. I'm a product of public education. Uh, went to UC Santa Barbara, a great place to go to school uh, for undergrad, and then to uh, UC Hastings uh, for law school. And I always plan to be a lawyer. That's uh, what I plan to do with my life. Um, you know, when you're the son of immigrants, uh, who did not go to college. I'm first in my family to go to college. You're either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And they saw my math grades and they said, you're going to be a lawyer. And so I was blessed. And that is the perfect word for it to uh, go to work for a very large law firm, uh, O'Melveny and Myers. Uh, and I was a corporate litigator, uh, courtroom lawyer, were, uh, litigated cases all across the country, specializing in labor and employment. And I did that for 30 years. My wife and I have a nonprofit in Rwanda, and we were going to move to Rwanda. That was our plan. Um, and I got sidetracked. I got waylaid. Uh, I had a friend who was on the board of uh, the Cal State system and they were looking for a new general counsel. Uh, she called me and said, uh, 
do you know anybody? And I said, yes. And I gave her some names of some folks. Uh, she said, well, we sort of thought maybe you would want to do this. I said, no, I'm, I, I know what I'm doing with my life. I've retired from my law firm. I want to, I want purpose. I want to give back. That's my goal. And she said, well, why don't you meet with the chancellor? He's only been here for about eight or nine months. I met with him. I told him all about Rwanda. He told me about, all about the CSU. We shook hands and I literally left for Rwanda. And I got a call from the headhunter saying, come back and meet the board. They want you to uh, take this job as general counsel. I said, no, I'm in Africa. <laughs> I got a different plan. They were persistent, found myself in front of the board. And when the chancellor said, look, you've been sucking it out of California for 30 years. It's time for you to give back a little bit to California. <laughs> Rwanda will be there. It resonated. You know, the CSU system has 500,000 students, the largest university in the country. Uh, and it was a chance to make a difference, uh, to have impact, work on access, work on funding, work on uh, reinventing higher ed. Uh, and when he said I could be executive vice chancellor and general counsel and help do that, um, I was in. So I told him I'd do it for five years. At the end of four years, good corporate citizen, been in the, in the corporate world my whole life. I went to him and said, succession planning. I've got my uh, successor. He's going to be great. He said, oh, you mean Andy Jones? Yeah, he's going to be terrific. He should take that job right now. And I thought, wow, I guess, <laughs> okay. And I can go off to Rwanda. He said, well, I have another idea. Why don't you go down to Fullerton and be the president there? Now, I will tell you, I've been looking over the fence at the president's job. There's 23 campuses in the CSU. And I was the consigliere, the, the, the counsel for all those presidents. And I thought, this is the greatest job in the world, but I'm never going to have a chance to do that. I didn't come up through the academy. Uh, I was never a provost or a dean or any of those things. And so I thought about it for about five seconds. And I said, absolutely, I'm in. Uh, and I was only going to do this for 18 months, be sort of an interim. I got here. I fell in love almost immediately. This is the greatest job in the world. And so here I am five and a half years later. Wow. I have not ever heard a story like quite like that in terms of leading to the presence. You know, one of the questions that I always ask is, what's the most surprising thing about your career? And it sounds like you've got quite a few of them. Well, I'm a person of faith and I believe that God's got a plan. And so I just kind of try to listen to that. That may sound hokey to some people, but to me, it's important. But I had no idea <laughs> I would ever be a college president or a university president, believe me. The biggest surprise is that I'm sitting in this chair. And I probably the second biggest surprise is how much I love it. That's um, super helpful. First of all, a couple of things you said uh, and attributed to the chancellor, who I assume was Tim White, sounding very much like things Tim White would say, like you've been sucking it out of California yeah, and need to give Tim. it back. That sounds very Tim. It is interesting. There aren't a lot of general counsels and lawyers. I mean, there are a lot of people who were lawyers who have law degrees who go on to be college presidents, but very few of them, I think, have been lawyers most of their careers, I think. I think that is remains a pretty unusual path. This is also a time where a lot of people are looking at university presidents and, and wondering if it's still a great job. And I'd love a little bit, say a little bit about why you think it is such a great job, because it seems really hard right now. Well, it is a very hard job. Do not get me wrong. And there are a lot of things about it that I, I'm not crazy about, to be honest with you. But looking at my life and the things that I've done in my life, um, it is the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. Um, I can see the impact. We are the largest undergraduate university in California. The impact of that is amazing. Um, we have 325,000 alums in Orange County and around, and 80% of them live within 50 miles of my campus. So I have a Titan family that I believe in strongly. This is impact. We don't just 
you know, more than 50% of our kids are first gen, more than 60% of our kids are Pell. These students, when they come to us, we're changing their lives, but we're also changing the lives of their family. We're building their future for them, for their first and their second job, but we're also teaching them and, and helping them to know how to create community, to build a community that's knit together, that cares about the future. If I wanna leave a legacy, if I wanna make a difference, if I wanna have an impact on the world that I, why I believe in diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice, knitting a community together so that it will be a great place to live, I do that on my campus and the surrounding geographic area, LA County, Orange County, Riverside County, San Bernardino, they will reflect that. I keep that in mind all the time. Why am I here? What's my mission? My mission is to help these students, these kids, they're not kids, but they feel like kids to me. I'm an old fart. To help them build the beloved community of tomorrow that I, that I believe in, but I haven't had a chance to build. I, haven't, I don't have the access. They have the access to do that. Today's episode is sponsored by the University Innovation Lab, which is a digital ecosystem designed to help higher ed professionals just like you and I accelerate innovation with a wide array of tools, trainings, resources, and community all in one location. If you also want to drive change and advance student success on your campus, but feel like there aren't enough hours in the day, and frankly, you don't always know where to start, the University Innovation Lab can help. It was created with tools and templates and professional development uniquely generated by the UIA. The lab helps student success administrators and innovators advance student-centered change and improvement more effectively with more clarity, collaboration, and impact. To join our waitlist, go to theuia.org and click the resources page. I have to say your energy is really invigorating. Are you trying to convince Doug and I to become college presidents? Was this a secret sale? <laughs> I'm telling you, it's the greatest job in the world. I'm not kidding you. This is a little unexpected, but I am coming from the perspective of working with a lot of lawyers. One of my observations is that the general counsel of institutions is obviously their job is to be the most risk averse. Often when I'm watching executive cabinets, I notice that they wait until the end to weigh in. And usually it's, you know, about risk aversion. And so I often see them as not inclined towards as much innovation and more reserved, right? And obviously you've had to do the opposite of that. As a lawyer, you've been trained with a very specific way of how to think about, how to analyze and to make decisions. Has that ever created a tension for you? We've had to push yourself to be a bit less risk averse now in the presidency, or do you feel like you're playing such a different role that everything is different? So you've changed entirely. Well, Bridget, what I would do is I would challenge your, your initial theory that lawyers are the most risk averse. Good lawyers are not the most risk averse. I used to tell the uh, lawyers that were working for me, the baby lawyers, the associates that I was helping to train, I said, an okay lawyer identifies the problem for me. A better lawyer identifies a problem and offers one solution. It's usually the least risky solution. A good lawyer, a good lawyer comes to me and says, here's the problem. And here are three alternative solutions. And I think this one is the best because I think it's best for the future of the business, of the company, et cetera. So I was trained and I believe strongly that a lawyer can't just give the advice that is the most risk averse. I can tell anybody how to avoid getting sued, but that has to go into the soup. It has to go into the mix of what's best for the company, what's best for growing the company, building revenue, market share, uh, et cetera. And something comes out of that. So sometimes the thing that's the most risk averse isn't the best thing. 
That is also true. So that trained me up well to be the general counsel of the system. One of the arguments about why uh, the CSU general counsel's office wasn't doing as well as it should when I came was it was too risk averse. Sometimes you got to fight a case. You have to set a standard, put a marker in and say, no, we're not going to settle that case because that's not what is best for students. That's not as what's best for the long-term health of the institution. The great thing about being a lawyer, what lawyers learn to do if they're good is to take lots and lots of information, put it in chronological order, digest it, figure out what's most important, and then find solutions. So we think logically, deductively, and creatively to move toward a solution. Boy, that's trained me well to be a college president. Uh, and I think that's great training for any good leader. Point taken. That was excellent analysis. And that's, that's very similar to the advice I give for folks who are trying to figure out how to tee up decisions to leaders in terms of lightening the decision-making fatigue, doing some of that groundwork of vetting and identifying and making a recommendation. So this is great. Just thinking about your role, thinking about how you're looking at higher ed, you really give us a a compelling vision for why you do this work and what your passion, how you how you connect to it. But I'm curious about what changes you think need to happen from higher ed at this moment, given the very specific background that you bring to the table. It might surprise you with the first thing that comes to mind for me. You all at Inside Higher Ed might see this more um, clearly than individual presidents or leaders or campuses see. Higher ed is under attack right now. The value proposition of higher ed is under attack right now. The, the idea of having uh, a campus be a crucible of ideas, the academy be a, being a place where we examine different issues, the freedom to do that and to come up with new ideas and innovation is under attack right now. From my perspective, what higher ed needs, uh, I, this is going to sound silly, but they need a got milk campaign. We need to restate and reshare the value proposition of higher ed. Now, Absolutely, our students should leave us prepared for their first job and their second job and their third job. Gone are the days like dinosaurs like me stay in a job for 30 years. They're gonna have those. And they should be developing their profession, but they should also leave being great citizens, wanting to give back to their community. I want them to sit on corporate boards and on boards of education, to be entrepreneurs and give back to their community. Higher ed is the place where we collectively build and quilt communities together. We come up with common value propositions. As a lawyer, that's what laws and regulations are. They're just common value propositions that are the sinew that holds us together as a community. You learn that in higher ed and you go out and you inculcate it into your community. Higher ed is a place where we can examine the possibilities of the future, where it's okay to say wacky things because sometimes those wacky things turn out to be the best things. That's how you innovate substantively. Higher ed is a place to move our country forward. Higher education, I believe this because I lived it, is the great equalizer. If I bring my kids to my, to my university and they graduate, they will go on to amazing master's and doctoral programs and or out in the community and they will thrive. The kids that don't come to me, the kids that don't get out of community college, the kids that go, go straight into the workforce from high school, a lot of them are not going to thrive. Instead, they're going to get on that treadmill of a rat race 
and, they, and they're not going to move forward. We need, as a sector, to share that value proposition broadly and proudly and swagger about it. Frankly, the data is so compelling. Look at the difference between what you earn with a degree and what you don't. It, the value proposition is there. Look at where all innovation comes from. I'm talking about in STEM, in the arts, in humanities, in engineering and computer science, without higher ed. We will not move forward as a country and we will not move forward as a community. Um, I don't think anyone's ever accused you of being uninspiring, I would guess. <laughs> Thanks for the pep talk. I agree about higher ed actually um, engaging with the public, but also listening and responding to those attacks. Doug. I was going to ask a lot of what you just talked about was about marketing and referred to got milk. Are there also things that institutions need to step up their game on sort of actual change from within the sector in addition to proving the public perception of it and the value? Absolutely. Sometimes people use the Titanic uh, metaphor. I don't think that's a good one. The Titanic sunk. We don't want to use that. But I think using an aircraft carrier is probably higher ed takes a long time to turn. It takes a long time to adjust. The academy thought we couldn't do a lot of things. Universities thought we couldn't do a lot of things. We have proven that's not true. Uh, I'm very proud that Cal State Fullerton was one of the first universities in the country when the pandemic hit to go virtual. If I had told my faculty that you're going to teach all your classes on Zoom, I would have been tarred and feathered and run out of town, right? But it actually worked. We, we assured persistence of education while protecting the health and safety of our kids. Now, coming out of that pandemic, it's a new normal. Everybody talks about this. We learned things. Higher ed can change quickly. You know, I had my financial aid folks say to me, everybody else can leave campus, but we have to be here. We have to be on campus in our offices doing our work. I called baloney on that. They called baloney on that. I didn't even use the word baloney, by the way. And within the matter of a, a couple of weeks, they were doing their job virtually. Now our students are coming back and they like those virtual appointments with our financial aid folks better than they did in person. Our counseling services, more students want virtual counseling that want to come into the offices. So we have changed the way in which we are delivering services to our kids. This, Doug, is the big thing that we have to do. We cannot let the ball and chain, the anchor of the past, slow us down or drag us back. We have to move forward. Now, I am. we are going to be an in-person institution forever. We are not going to turn into a virtual university because there is great value to coming together, communing together, seeing each other, talking to each other. But I have students that want more virtual classes, hybrid classes. I have capacity needs where if I can teach the lecture portion of that class virtually and have the lab in person, I can get access for more kids. I can move more kids to graduation. And it is a, a value thing. It improves everything for the institution, for the students, for the future. So, Doug, I think that is where higher ed has to pay attention. We, we just hired a bunch of uh, instructional design uh, individuals to design our bottleneck courses, our courses where kids can't get into those courses so that they can move forward and graduate because we want to expand the number of those. We were limited by the number of classes we have. Now, not the sky's the limit, but there are increased limits. So I think that's the big area where higher ed needs to innovate. And when we think we can't do it, don't say can't, let's say how. Yes, I agree. Higher ed definitely has to innovate and adapt, better listen to students on a 
if we're, if we're going to be expecting to have something that the Got Milk campaign has something to offer about, right? But I want to shift back to you. And we have a few questions that we generally ask everyone. And they're just about advice that you've received as a leader that's been really valuable to you, advice you most often give, and any books, especially in leadership, that have been useful. So I'll first start with, is there one piece of advice that someone has given you that has been most valuable for you throughout your leadership journey? Remember, I was a lawyer first in a, in a big law firm first. And so this may not be germane, but what it did was crystallize things for me. And I'm, I'm being a little tongue in cheek. One of my partners say to me when I was associate, remember one partner, one wife, one house. That was his, his big advice to me, which really, it was kind of silly advice, but it was keep your eye on the prize, keep your eye on the future, keep your eye on where you're going and what you're doing and don't get distracted. That's how I took it. The best advice that I've received was through watching one of the greatest leaders I've ever watched as opposed to him giving me specific advice. I had the good fortune and blessing of having Warren Christopher, um, who was Secretary of State in the Clinton administration and Assistant Secretary of State under the Carter administration. He was, he was the managing partner at O'Melanie when I was there. And I watched him build coalitions in our camp, in our law firm, and in the country. And he did it in a very special way, making sure that everybody had an opportunity to speak, divining consensus, not trying to be the smartest person in the room, not trying to impose his ideas on the group, but instead asking questions that would elicit different ideas, different approaches, different concepts, and then engaging in the navel gazing and the palaver that would lead to actually finding the best solution. I was blessed to see him do that. And I've always tried to run anything that I've led to lead with horizontal leadership where everybody has a voice they're respected and they know that they can share and they know there's no recriminations um, in sharing. There's no crazy ideas. It's okay. You know, I don't like the word, the, the term safe space, but it is a place where you can raise these ideas because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to come to the best solution. Um, so having different ideas in the room was the thing that I learned the most from uh, watching a great leader. That sounds like an incredible uh, learning opportunity. Is there advice that you give most frequently to people who are aspiring to leadership that is different than that? Well, it's only slightly different. I say there's three rules to leadership. Listen, listen, and listen, right? Active listening, not just passive listening, where you're actually engaging in the conversation and asking questions to make sure you understand. This is what I heard you say. This is what I think you're identifying as the problem. This is the solution that I, I hear you shape. Active listening is the most important thing. I'm only tongue in cheek with those three rules, but active listening is the number one rule. Number two, if you succeed, it is because of your team. Make sure you share and give that those accolades and the credit to your team. You will build a team, you will build loyalty, you will build camaraderie, you will build community. If things go south, it's the leader's fault. Take it upon yourself. Do not try and deflect that and say, well, it wasn't really my fault because that was someone else on me. No, 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 no. So listen, give credit and take the blame. That's pretty base. But I think those are to me the attributes of a great leader. That's great. I agree. People being less obsessed with taking credit and who gets the credit is actually a pretty big 
indicator of whether they're going to be a successful leader. So the last question is, is there any book that has been valuable to you as a leader in your journey that you would, that you most frequently recommend others read? I was a political science major in undergraduate. I'm a lawyer. I love the constitution. I love law. I love the complexity of society under law. And so I, I tend toward political leaders as my touchstone and goal standard. For me, I was seven years old when RFK was shot and MLK was shot the same year. They've been my inspirations for my life on, on good leadership. The books I recommend for leadership might be a little different than what you'd expect. First of all, I love the autobiography of Malcolm X. It is a study of a person transforming in their lives to becoming a leader. I always recommend it. Recently, I've been recommending uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, Leadership in Turbulent Times. Uh, it's a book she wrote about three years ago. It studies the leadership of Teddy Roosevelt, of FDR, of Lincoln, and of Lyndon Johnson. Very different leaders. You get you see how they led in crisis. Some were much more directive in their leaderships, were much more horizontal in their leadership. They were all hugely charismatic individuals. They all created an esprit de corps and a leadership among their team how they went about doing that. Lincoln was a much more lonely leader, but just an amazing individual that he did this. Teddy Roosevelt was much more demanding. FDR was a consensus builder. Lyndon Johnson defines defies definition <laughs> in his leader. Yet he was successful when we look back in building coalitions and working with Congress. So I think it's a great book to read. And it's a great book for college presidents to read. Great. Well, these are wonderful recommendations and we so appreciate them to share with others. And we've really appreciated the chance to get to know you. You've been quite surprising and delightful. We're always looking for other examples of paths to the presidency. So this has also been very helpful. We want to thank you for your time today. Doug, as always, thanks for being an excellent co-host. And for those at home, we will see you next week. Thanks so very much. I really enjoyed it.